0: Net Zero, A Digital Journey, a podcast series produced by Content With Purpose in partnership with BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Net Zero, A Digital Journey, a podcast series made by BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT and Content With Purpose. And this series is all about exploring the essential role the IT professions have in addressing the climate crisis and achieving net zero targets. I'm Helen Cheresky, your host for the series. Now, the world is a complicated place and there are lots of different ways to look at it and think about it. And we humans are a social, creative species and one of the huge advantages of that is that an individual can develop huge expertise in looking at the world in one particular way, perhaps as an economist, a policymaker, an academic or an industrialist. But then, this is the good bit, groups of humans can come together to combine insight from all of those perspectives to work out what to do next. And this is Collaboration at its best, accepting the complications and working with them in the real world, rather than seeking to ignore or dismiss some of that reality. So this episode is all about the relationships and different perspectives that can advance green IT and digital and data solutions to the climate crisis, particularly between industry, academics, practitioners and governments. And as always, we have two fantastic guests with us to share their insight into this topic. So let me introduce our first guest today, and that is Chris Adams from Climate. climate action tech and the green web foundation could you introduce introduce us briefly tell us a little bit about um well what your you know there's all these job descriptions about these days what do yours actually mean what do you do and what's your focus
2: Yeah, um, I've got two hats on today, I suppose. The first one is that I'm one of the organizers of a community called climateaction.tech. That's a group of technologists, people who work in a number of tech companies, about 7,000 companies from Alphabet to, I guess, the Lando in Germany. And uh, what we largely do is uh, we all work on either kind of climate tech startups, or we're working to achieve some kind of more uh, an an awareness of climate in our various work. So you can think of it as a kind of like shared space for that. I also work uh, as the executive director of the Green Web Foundation, where we track the transition of the internet towards a fossil-free one. We provide uh, training and consulting for organizations, and we also create tools and uh, data for people to basically check any website on the internet and see if it's running on renewable energy or not, and then figure out what to do to switch.
1: Well, I didn't know it was even possible to do that. So that's a very good start. So Chris, everyone says that collaboration is a good thing. It's kind of a, you know, it's one of those things that's repeated all the time at the moment. But why specifically in the IT sector, when it comes to net zero, what what sort of places is it needed
2: most? I think there are two reasons why it's important for this. First of all, is that technology itself has a non-zero carbon footprint. If we look at, say, the IPCC reports, they give figures of the actual kind of tech sector itself using between 5 and 10% of all electricity, I believe was the number that was used inside there. But it works out to be about a carbon footprint of something that's comparable to the shipping sector or to the aviation sector. So that's something that you need to be able to get down to zero, for example. Also, a lot of the solutions that are people People basically tout as a solution to uh, climate change and getting towards net zero, tend to rely on some kind of technologically mediated solutions. So that might be things like uh, more efficient ways of dealing with, say, transport as one thing. There might be prototyping new forms of technology to come up with cleaner forms of energy or cleaner forms of kind of heat for our for our homes, for example. So there's two kind of key things that we have there. But I think there are there 's probably a few areas where you you asked about like where is there a more need for more collaboration is that correct Yes yeah yes, so these are two things, and I think there are there's probably a real there 's real scope for in my view more collaboration about uh, what net zero really means and whether what the, what makes a kind of good net zero target versus a bad net zero target and how we 'd actually get there because when you look at the science. The challenge is very, very large, and it really spells out some pretty sweeping changes that are necessary about our use of fossil fuels and the kind of resource usage and implied expansion that you might have had previously. And I think there's also another part which is about communicating with the public about what the impact to various organizations might actually be. So for, if we take something like electric cars, electric cars, we would say, yeah, they're probably a better thing than, say, ice cars, internal combustion engine cars. But if we take it, some companies like, say, Tesla, which might be one of the canonical ones, there's an environmental footprint associated with making that car in the first place. And for that to be something we can have an informed discussion around, you would need things like, say, annual reports from organizations to be t- t- talking about what the footprint of creating all these things are. Because without that, it's difficult to have a useful conversation. And in many cases, there is a real push from organizations to really control the message to the point that it's hard to actually have a kind of useful public discussion. For example, te- Tesla, I'm a big fan of, of like the concept of this, but the last report was 2020. Uh, came from 2020. There's no real kind of standardized ways of actually being able to measure this versus the alternatives right now.
1: Well, these are big issues that we'll get into, but I think this idea that, and there's just this difficult principle that the world is a complicated place. And in a way, we've all lived a very narrow view of it, and this is forcing us all to step back And ask questions we'd never asked before, but then, like you say, the tools aren't necessarily there yet to answer. So it's all happening at once. We will come back to some of those, but it is time to meet our second guest for today, which is Alvin Orbach White, who's an associate professor at the University of Swansea and the Energy Safety Research Institute. So, Alvin, you know, academics can do a broad range of things. Tell us just a little bit about your focus and what your expertise is.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. So at the Energy Safety Research Institute, we really care about the safety of supply. And that's where the safety comes from in the title of our energy. At the bottom line, any problem that you want to solve, you're gonna require energy in order to do so. And being at an academic institute, we have the opportunity to shape young minds and to help foster these ideas of inventiveness and innovation within them. Because oftentimes it comes from them themselves we don't really have to instill it in them we find it within them already especially when I go and speak with younger generation um, by going to high schools uh, secondary schools I find that the kids there are very uh, very able to adapt to the thinking that is required going forward so they are able to take what we consider to be really t- relatively complex policy issues and break them down into very simple uh, technological steps and think about well how these technologies can integrate so for example, Plastics recycling is something that I work on. The classic uh, plastics recycling scenario, now the equation is simple. Plastics go in, they get recycled, plastics come back out. It's very simple. Well, sometime down the future, we've got to think about what we're going to do with these plastics. And I think that future is now. And we've got to start using those plastics as other alternative materials from what other than plastics. And these kids are very good at understanding that plastics in does not need to be plastics out, that you can do material processing so that you can make other new materials. You do chemical recycling or other types of uh, recycling technologies. And it's really good to do that at at an educational level because these are intricate problems that are entwined in our policy documents. And our policies are often developed around the idea that plastics in equals plastics out. And so we need to change that paradigm at the education sector.
0: Net zero, a digital journey. This episode is sponsored by the School of Computing Science at the University of Glasgow. The University of Glasgow School of Computing Science supports research and teaching at the intersection of theoretical and applied computing. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, netzerodigital.bcs.org forward slash UK. Net Zero, a digital journey. And when it comes
1: to collaboration, I guess, I mean, universities collaborate with the outside world, especially these days in lots of ways, but perhaps there's two major areas. And one of them is that academia can collaborate through research, through developing new, you know, recycling techniques or whatever, through studying the systems. But academia can also collaborate through education with its responsibility in, as you say, educating the next generation. And I was just wondering about how both of those are influenced by this need for net zero, especially when it comes to IT systems and digital systems. Like, there's so much education. You know, everyone thinks they're an expert on education because they went to school, and teachers are kind of fed up of being told what to do by people who aren't experts in education. I guess. How can universities best collaborate? How does it work for those two sectors, specifically for for IT and net zero?
3: education works on a little bit of a different time frame to industry industry has to move forward very fast has to move with consumer demands and revenue streams and so forth whereas education has an opportunity to to do a little bit of blue sky thinking so it can come up with uh, you know more blue sky ideas something that are more on the long term horizon things that are on the short term horizon these are often the things that industry is working on because they're going to have to stay ahead of competitors so i think the first way that uh, education can help is by uh, looking at these more blue sky ideas and maintaining blue sky thinking, and then the second way I think is also developing skill sets within side uh, the student body that go beyond just the engineering skill sets, so or technical skill sets, or how how would I say it, maybe more siloed skill sets, because more and more we're finding that even industrial problems and technical problems we're undergoing require more than one skill set to to overcome. So. In the education sector, we can be working towards a more holistic education scenario that allows students uh, to grow in multiple diverse fields while also maintaining very specific specialization. Because, of course, you don't want planes to fall out of the sky and you don't want bridges to fall, but you still need people to be able to talk to the groups that are associated with either side of the bridge.
1: Well let's pick up on some specific examples um and I'm hoping that perhaps both of you have I mean because collaboration is this very broad term it can mean lots of different things but I wondered if each of you had some examples of you know sort of specific examples of a type of collaboration between the i t sector and and anyone else really on on top on net zero topics like that you know and what something that we can learn from that collaboration um Chris, have you got any examples that you, you could share
2: yeah so there is one thing that I think is actually quite exciting, in my view. So we know we, we've seen how, say, the cost of say solar panels and batteries has fallen massively in the last ten years. And it's like nearly ten times cheaper in the last than it was ten, 10 years ago. All right. Now, this one of the reasons this has occurred, and uh, there's some really really fascinating research out of. I've totally blanked on the name of the of the, the group in Oxford who are actually looking at specifically for this. But they look at, okay, what technologies does it does, does this tend to occur in and which one does it not tend to occur in? So we're able to allocate essentially investment to kind of more quickly meet the kind of uh, targets we might actually have. There's a, a really nice uh, extension from this kind of work to explore this kind of learning effect that I believe the Hertie School of Governance in Germany is with. Uh, I believe one of... Uh, Uh, Lin Kak is one of the people working on this, where they're basically using AI to read through all of these different patent documents, to do some text analysis, to figure out which of these patents demonstrate the same kind of features that have been identified in other research to make it easier for us to kind of prioritize our research so that if we have a finite amount of time and finite amount of money to research various technologies to get us to net zero, which ones are going to be the best ones if we want to kind of transition away from an existing fossil fuel kind of Default for how our how we currently heat up and move things and 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 basically power our world. Really, that's one example. I have more, but I want to leave some space for Alvin as well. Actually, if possible.
1: Well, it's a really interesting example, just because we like. You know, it's, there's, there's, there's also ethical questions. I mean, we once you get to the use of machine learning and, you know, people have been talking a lot about chat GPT, but how machines make decisions for us and how we use them and how much we are responsible for, you know, who's responsible if it makes a mistake, right? So, so, you know, that thing you describe, say uh, some patents get missed because they don't contain a particular word. You know, the machines have then just caused a gap, but then perhaps there have been a human caused gap somewhere else. I mean, the ethics of this are quite interesting.
2: I think it's really, really important to understand, like what you said, this kind of idea of recourse and the idea of humans being in the loop. I think if you... Basically, entirely hand over to AI. All you end up doing is reproducing all the kinds of biases and problems that you've had before. Because, in you know, there's a term "garbage in, garbage out." Like that's what you have. But there is a, some really, really inspiring work from. There's a group group called Climate Policy Radar in the UK. They're a a UK-based tech startup. What they've been doing is they've been ingesting all the kind of climate policy they can find across all of the world. And uh, what they did a really good demonstration of is basically having someone who's been involved in climate policy at all the IPCC meetings for the last 15 years. She basically uh, shared this on Twitter saying, look, I think this is really interesting. Look, uh, this is me as an expert. Trying to come up with some examples, like it's basically, she said, "Come up with some policy here." Now, because she has a domain knowledge, uh, Mikhail is her first name, uh, her surname. I'm not, I'm afraid, I'm unable to pronounce. But if you Google "climate policy radar Mikhail," you'll find her. Where and a really, really good example of this, she's basically able to show this and say, "Well, look, these are quick examples of what policy can be across various languages." This makes it really easy uh, for people in other countries to adopt these and say, "Well, this is some really good model policy from, say, America, for example, or on me." Thing. And uh, and and then that's something that can then be adopted in other parts of the world. So it's very very quickly able to kind of raise the minimum standard for policy making. As long as you actually have people who have domain expertise inside it, so they can catch some of the things. Because one of the problems with things like ChatGPT and AI is that they are very very convincing, but there's no way of knowing if you're not a domain expert yourself it's very easy to end up with a very convincing but otherwise wrong thing. And if you don't know how to check, to see that yourself, you can end up with, yeah, like you said, either unethical or very dangerous policies being enacted. So having a human in the loop is really important for this kind of stuff, but it's uh, quite a promising area in my view.
1: The thing about collaboration is that it is, it's, it's interesting kind of from a management point of view because it may produce a much more relevant output in the end, but it can kind of also feel like it slows things down. You know, the point of it is to introduce different perspectives, but you often have people who go, we just want to get on with it. We just got our thing. We know what we're doing. We just want to do it. And it's all very nice to talk to these people, but it's slow. It's expensive. It means we have to kind of water down what we're doing. Do you see, Chris, that kind of resistance in the climate world ever, that, you know, we just want to get on and make this faster and do it, but the collaboration, people sort of feel it gets in the way a bit.
2: Yes, uh, this is one of the things. I mean, the first kind of assumption with that line of argument is that you already have all the information and you already know everything you possibly need to know. That's a fairly kind of daring assumption to make in many of these cases. But when you do something, um, in like, if we look at like technology, I suppose, one of the examples that we might refer to is things like uh, collaborations, getting other people's point of view is actually helpful when we're going to decide. Uh, which ideas to be adopting uh, at a kind of like at a scale, for example? I mean, uh, if we just go, maybe look, say, ten years ago, for example. Ten years ago, when we had things like say, lift sharing, like say, Uber and Lyft and stuff like that, these were super handy, and people like, oh, oh, well, these are great, and uh, in many ways, they were seen as much more convenient and greener than the idea of like buying a car and driving a car. And people threw around all these stats about saying, well, cars are only in use for like one, uh, like a, a, a tiny percentage of the of, of the of the week of the of the week so if you just had a small number of people driving around maybe that would help and that could get cars off the road but now what we've actually found is through lots and lots of research uh from uh, in many cases like transport specialists they find that oh it turns out that a lot of these uh lift sharing things because they're so convenient people end up using them more just like how making anything more efficient will can often lead to an increase in absolute usage we've actually seen that this ends up can end up putting more cars on the road and create more and create a you know, larger emissions than you otherwise would have had from the same amount of people like using their own cars for example and now you see examples of people talking about actually maybe there's other other things we can do instead maybe there's other ways of making sure people can get around and solve the problem at different layers of this so like there's like city planning or you might think about okay well how do you this is this research here has helped inform the discussion around active transport and stuff like that and to their credit transport companies like this have chosen to then invest in say micromobility companies to make it easier for you to have a bike or a scooter where it is in the world that it's legal that is for you to actually have an alternative to having to drive around but still meet these kind of needs of transport so that stuff wouldn't have happened if we just kind of stamped on the accelerator to, to kind of use that point 10 years ago and just said yeah let's just absolutely just go for cars or let's just have lots of self-driving cars over everything like that i think that having other voices in the in the room is actually very very helpful for this and in many cases when we think about climate when you realize that climate in many ways is it's it, it's like a story of in many cases a, a particularly kind of like richer, uh, well present powerful group who are basically uh, able to kind of capture kind of gains for themselves at the expense of others this is actually quite an important thing to to actually take into account in, in my view
1: it is. It's complicated. And I think it's well, that thing of checking, like having humility, is an important part of collaboration. I think, and it's one that often collaborations are, p- are sort of, you know, painted as very dynamic, dominance, you know, the sort of winning things. And actually, perhaps humility is the best skill of all, and that's not necessarily valued in the business world at the moment. So, Alvin, when it comes to education, you were talking about, you know, this need for problem solving in a broader holistic view of the world how much you know in the case of collaboration with industry so industries in general i'm sure would love everyone wants schools to do specifically their thing right you know the humanities graduates think everyone should teach more english and the computer scientists think everyone should teach more maths and the people who do subjects that are not in the curriculum think those should be in the curriculum and and so is there a risk here that you know we an industry kind of needs to collaborate, not just on the narrow problem solving of here's the problem we've got right now, but on sort of the bigger concepts, you know, the blue skies thinking, like you were saying, you know, it feels that collaboration is too easily becomes too narrow because each side has a specific expertise and you narrow in on that expertise. How do we make sure that we actually, you know, reward curiosity and just thinking about the world and being able to read and write at the same time as there's all these problems and everyone's like, well, we need to solve the problem and school should do something about it?
3: Well, the thing with universities is I always thought about a university as like an orchard with a very large wall and you can grow things inside the orchard and you have the wall to maintain the, um, the identity from the outside. You know, so at Swansea University, for example, we have what's called now a general engineering course. And so they have specialization in particular engineering, but they're also learning generally across a broad, a broad range of engineering topics. It gives them a much larger uh, purview of different problem sets and skill sets. We have a PhD program here, which is integrated with industry. So industry come in and assign, well, they don't assign, but they, they have a, a say over the type of um, problems that uh, their students or the PhD students are going to work on. So there's a part of the PhD process where they're doing general understanding, but they're also then focusing on topics that you've been uh, uh, given by industry. So, you know, they're they're industrially re- relevant. I think we still, though, have to, to cordon off or ma- make a sanctuary of the space that we can do blue sky thinking. Um, Higgs, for example, when he came up with the Higgs boson, he said himself later that he wouldn't have got funding. For his type of research in today's day and age, uh, very very small uh, but very very important um, concept in in physics had no industrial relevance, and that type of thinking now has is is helping us understand our place in the cosmos. And, in place, uh, but but that type of research wouldn't have been wouldn't have been allowed. I teach a class on appropriate technologies where we have uh, discussions about uh, whether just because we can do engineering, should we? Uh, sometimes we shouldn't uh, in certain cases. And you talk about collaboration. I think collaboration is really important. There's an old German saying that if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go as part of a team. And if you go as part of a team, then you have to understand the, the dynamics of a lot of people in that collaboration. Some collaborations can take a very, very long time as a consequence. And the democratic process should allow all the voices to iterate in the, the growth st- in the growth stages. Where that where that fits and how that should be designed is a matter for individuals to uh, to do in their, in their in their in their locations. But at Swansea, we have a mixture of, of of courses which are very specific. For example, in chemical engineering, we have students who are doing design processes where they're working with each other, but they're spending an entire year working on this process, this project. And some of these projects are very blue sky. Often, the ones that I give them are blue sky thinking. I'm like saying like make a tangible product out of greenhouse gases. But they have to make a, a pilot plant, and you do the unit you know, plant economics and so on and so forth. And others are very are much more uh, straightforward and, and 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 rigid. But as long as they're technically sufficient, then you can still have this blue sky thinking. So I think it's a, a careful balance of the fulcrum that you have on one hand very high blue sky thinking, but on the other hand very tangible uh, practical skill sets.
1: And how do we deal with sort of just moving on to why people might collaborate? You know. A lot of the incentives for business, certainly at the moment, and for the IT sector, perhaps, are financial. You know, there are money concerns. Money is tight. Everyone's concerned about the bottom line. But then collaboration, quite often, is a good thing not just because of the bottom line, or perhaps the bottom line would come out equal. It's because it's a good thing for society. And I think a lot of things in the climate space probably fall into that gap. Yes, you can take a long-term view that says if we want a livable society in 50 years, it benefits us to do these things now. But in the short term, quite often collaboration benefits a community. You know, It benefits the way society runs, but it doesn't necessarily change the number on the accounting How do we deal with incentivizing collaboration that works for society just because it's better for society rather than only because it's good for a bottom line? Chris?
2: So one example that you might want to look at here is, say, there's a transition away from fossil fuels to, say, renewables. In many cases, when you're thinking about stuff like this, you can like try to do things like, say, push ahead as a company and just kind of deploy, 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 deploy as much as you can. And then uh, what, then be confused about why you're getting people pushing back, and you're finding it really hard to continue achieving that kind of rate of trans of transition uh, over a longer period of time. If you uh, and the, the one nice example of this is basically the kind of rollout of say like wind turbines and solar and stuff like that. Without things like well thought through community benefit programs for this, where you're collaborating with your community, you're not going to actually have. Uh, that you might be able to kind of get one project delivered, for example. But given the pace that we need to be working at, in many cases, it does make sense to to spend a bit of time to actually get people on board in the, in, in, in the first place so that you have a sustainable pace to allow you to hit the kind of targets that we need for 2030. And that applies in the energy sector. But the same ideas also apply in the technology sector. Like uh, when you look at the numbers for just the tech sector itself, we need to be reducing the emissions uh, by around half around 50% to stay within two degrees of warming in the, between now and 2030 and if we're looking at reports saying 1.5 is what we should be aiming for that should be even greater and we're not going to be able to retain that kind of pace without being able to have community involvement or actually having kind of like community benefit programs and things like this where there's a clear uh, role for collaboration with existing people or existing community who are, who are outside of like your typical firm for example.
1: So you think that the idea that there are targets is enough basically there are there are there are community you know there are civilization targets for net zero and that's you know obviously there's other things like biodiversity that matter but having a target is going to be enough to incentivize companies to do the thing because it's the right thing to do just by itself without thinking about the financial stuff
2: I don't think so I think there is basically a role for like the rest of society like you know laws are made by people and there is a, and the laws are informed by kind of like the public discourse for this i i don't think you i don't think having targets is enough but having like a robust debate about okay how you're actually going to achieve those targets is important so for example you might have i mean let's just bring this to like net zero for example you can have an organization that say oh we are we're going to be i don't know, net zero by 2050 for example which might sound okay and like some of the science kind of implies that you want to do that but if you don't have any kind of discussion about okay well what does your kind of glide path of emissions from here all the way down to zero look like there's different ways you might have that so one target is not enough but having a conversation about okay how do we get there and under what time frame are we going to moving is much more important having there's some work from uh, the new climate institute and they talk about uh, they released a report last year called the corporates see C- the Corporate Responsibility Monitor, I believe, and they basically looked at all the net zero targets from from I think a hundred of the largest companies making up something like a eighty percent of all of the emissions that we have globally. And uh, the thing they finally found was that yes, there are companies that have targets. If you don't have interim targets, then these targets might as well not really exist. Or if you don't if you don't include all of the actual impact an organisation has, then again you can end up feeling like you're further along than you really are and uh, one thing that has come out of this which is actually quite useful in my view is some work from iso the international standards organization they've been creating some guidance where they basically say if you are, if you're going to talk about net zero and you want to have a net zero target you can't really say that you have a net zero target that means anything if you're not aligned with 1.5 degrees of warming, as described by the IPCC. And if you don't have any kind of interim target before, uh, you need to have a target between now and 2025. Because if you have it further out, then the problem is you can set a target, then you can leave. And then it's the next person's job to actually deliver on that. And like, this is not going to actually help us get to the end goal that we want to actually have and what the kind of climate science spells out that we need to be acting on
1: and alvin when it comes to what you see in your students you know but these incentives between doing you know students being incentivized because it's the right thing to do for climate reasons versus Incentivized to optimize the financial case, for example, do you see that balance shifting over time i mean it 's sort of said that the younger people today are much more aware of these things and they 're much more willing to choose like to prioritize social targets over financial targets do you, Do you see that in practice in your student body
3: yeah, absolutely I mean for example, we have um, In the master's class that I taught, we had uh, a NASA engineer come and give a very, I thought, riveting discussion about robotics in space, which I was very keen on. And then the students were asking, well, what's the point in doing this when you have other problems associated on the ground that we should be possibly working on now? I have other incidences with students who are continually coming to me and probably other professors as well discussing the anxieties that they're feeling because they're trying to pick their their subject matter and they're trying to uh, carve out a career. But at the same time as carving out a career, they want to do something that makes a difference and they're feeling the effects of uh, anxiety acor- according to cli- because of climate change. And over time, I'm seeing that students are picking... Um, Not just course load, but also uh, career choices going into certain industries over others, namely usually the oil and gas industry is one that they will tend to say that they don't want to work in. There's a lot that are working for or working towards going into green energy sector, solar farms and water purification and things like this. Really thinking more about this aspect, uh, considering the externalities associated with the job that they have and the career that they're trying to choose for themselves is definitely happening on a... It was a lot when I first came to Swansea about six years ago and it's definitely been growing year on year the discussions I have along these lines with my students.
1: Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it brings up another point about collaboration, which is, you know, we're talking about collaboration as though it's always seen as a beneficial thing. But actually, certainly some of my students would look at collaborations, you know, that companies they're working with, they would look at who they're collaborating with and they will make judgments on a company based on who they're collaborating with. So, you know, if a... A company perhaps does a particular type of i t but they collaborate very heavily with the oil industry. you know I can see that being that that would that would be judged these days in in the way it perhaps it wasn't before so which which raises an interesting topic about collaborations that it's not just that they they perhaps have to work you know for the reasons set out in the collaboration, but there's also a thing here of being seen (laughs) you know it's your friends are seen if you're like you know you're being judged based on your circle of friends on your circle of collaborators chris do you see that affecting you know a companies choosing certain collaborators above others because they're aware of the reputation that they you know the reputation it gives them
2: you see companies do this but you also see employees do this who in many ways may feel like hey I might I thought I signed up for this, and it turns out that I'm getting something different in this. I mean one example uh Microsoft is a really, really. Uh, in many ways, they are seen as a kind of leader on climate in the tech sector, right? They're one of the founding organizations of the Green Software Foundation. They have a whole background working with, say, building very efficient data centers. They're also probably one of the market leaders in servicing the oil and gas industry. And recently, as a response, they've basically said um, any energy company that has a net zero target by 2050, like Saudi Aramco has a target for 2050, as an example of how low this bar is, they've Basically said they will reserve the right to help any uh, any organization any of these companies uh, basically extract energy out of the ground, including fossil fuels, for uh, to help uh, to, to help meet energy needs. Right. So this is like a company with a net zero target, basically saying we will help. We reserve the right to help companies for free extract oil from the ground, which is kind of very much in in contradiction with their existing plans on climate. You see, company. You see, employees actually publicly saying, I don't agree with this. This isn't 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 a good thing. And you see organizations basically saying, look, I'm not sure I really want to have this company in my supply chain for this reason, because this is uh, at odds with our own plans and because we realize that we do need to be somewhat aware of the alignment that we actually have if we have a public partner, like we said here. So you do see examples like that. Now I'm choosing Microsoft because they're quite a interesting and complicated and high-profile one. You know they do lots of good things, but this is one thing it'd be really nice if they weren't doing. But they are so. But this is like a really good example of organisations being some maybe wary about this. And you'll be, you you do see companies being mindful of who they choose to work with and how that reflects upon them. I mean that's uh, the one example. Another example in technology might be actually like Twitter and Tesla and things like that. The fact that you've had a really, really kind of the kind of canonical green electric car is now associated with it has a very, very different kind of profile in the media now. And that's and we've seen changes in the markets as results. People feel I'm not sure I really want to be associated with that. And companies who are maybe in their supply chain might not want to be that in, in that in that role as well. So you definitely see this in the technology sector, especially when there's a discussion around big tech and the role it might actually have in the unfolding climate crisis and who they're choosing to help with their considerable resources,
1: and they do have a lot of resources to play with. We are actually getting towards the end of our time, and I was just wondering for both of you, what's the, the message on this top on this topic? You know, when it comes to collaboration, the IT sector going out looking for collaborations that will help the world reach net zero as well as their individual company or sector goals. What what's the message that you think needs to be heard most of all by the IT sector as they go out looking for collaborators and, and starting to explore this world? Uh, Alvin, first.
3: I think you should recognise that about 80% of every subject is language words and the words that we use are very different from different groups. Uh, an example I can think of clearly is the word duty in chemical engineering it means something very different to a civil servant who would think about the word duty. And every time I've gone into a new subject field, I've had to learn this the hard way over and over again. So one of the first books I always buy is a dictionary of the particular topic, uh, the subject field in which I go into. And I think this is easily overlooked because we can all be speaking English, but we can be speaking over each other because we're not using the the, the language appropriately to to, to the way that other people understand them.
1: So pay attention to your words. Um, And Chris, what's the message you think the IT sector needs to hear when it comes to climate relevant collaboration?
2: For climate-relevant collaboration for the tech sector, so we need to be, there are are people saying, the ITU has basically said, we need to halve emissions by 2030. That's a 7.5% reduction each year, year on year. If you're not on that kind of pathway or better, uh, it's really worth thinking about how believable, the net zero target you that is for your organisation. And if you're going to be working, if you're choosing to work with an organisation which does have that, how does it look for you and your supply chain? That'd be, that'd be one of the key things because right now in this point in the climate crisis, speed is justice and we really, really need to be moving fast.
1: Well, that is a very powerful message to finish on. So we are going to have to end there. That is all we've got time for. So huge thanks to our two guests, Chris Adams and Alvin Allback-White. Hopefully next time a collaboration opportunity comes along, you'll see it a little bit differently. And do look at the other podcasts in these series. We have covered a wide range of topics and it really is worth listening to the whole set together. But that's it for this week. I'm Helen Cheresky and you've been listening to Net Zero, A Digital
0: Journey. Thanks to the sponsor of this episode, the School of Computing Science at the University of Glasgow. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Net Zero, a Digital Journey series by going to netzerodigital.bcs.org forward slash UK or simply searching for hashtag netzerodigital on social media. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on socials to check out more of our podcast collaborations.